0: Ray, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to skip out of numbers tonight. I noticed that Pastor Kelly, a few, couple of weeks ago when he was filling in, went to Romans chapter 8, and he did one verse. And I tried to find one verse, but finally gave up. So I got three. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 in verses 10, 11, and 12, which are, or which compose, the last of the eight Beatitudes. It's the only one that has three verses, more than one, and it's the only one that is something you respond to what you're receiving, the rest is what you produce by the power of the Spirit. But before we look at this and before we read, let's go ahead and pray and turn this over to the Lord, okay? Okay. Father, we thank you so much for the songs we've been singing, The Reminder. Today I was thinking of the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, when we think back on our past, at least for most of us, we can certainly identify with that, with those words. When it comes to spiritualness, When it comes to spiritual life, we had none. We were lost. And yet you loved us and you sent the word of God to us and the spirit of God and saved us and gave us life. We thank you for that tonight. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives and are doing to make us conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So we commit our time to you and these verses to you that we'll be reading in just a moment, and ask that you would use them mightily in my life and in the lives of all that are here. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his honor and for his glory. Amen. So what we're going to do as we start this, we're not going to just read the three verses, we're going to read all 12 of the Beatitudes. This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. I hope it is yours too. If not, I hope you start looking at it. And the whole Sermon on the Mount. But this is the beginning. If you want to find out what a Christian is to be, this is a good place to begin. Anytime you want to sort of measure your life, look at the Beatitudes. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is telling us there what a kingdom citizen is like or to be like. These are the characteristics of someone that's come to know Jesus Christ and is truly his. So follow with me as we read. And uh, we'll start with verse 1 of chapter 5. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now that was that was good so far, right? Seven things that the Spirit of God is producing in us and make, turning our lives into as one who belongs to Christ. Characteristics of a, of a true Christian. But then comes verse ten. Listen to what follows. They're all about the same issue. Blessed are those, number eight, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How many of you really like those last three verses? Blessed are you who are persecuted when men speak all kinds of evil about you and insult you, and maybe worse, I think what Jesus is saying here and I see the relation of the seven first of these Beatitudes with this one is that if you're living this way if you are becoming more like Jesus Christ because you started out with poverty in spirit I I see a progression in these seven progressing from acknowledging to God I'm lost I am weary and heavy laden. Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, please come to me. I will give you rest, and I will give you rest for your soul. So these seven begin with a man who needs rest, a man that recognized, or a woman, that they are, when it comes to spiritual life, they're paupers. They are absolutely lost, and they need a savior. And then it progresses from there. Blessed are those who mourn. What do you do when Christ first brings you to himself? I can remember in my days, first year I was in the Air Force and my wife and I were married, coming to know the Lord and realizing immediately after he did a work in my heart, I needed to get to a right church. I needed to repent of sin. I needed to change my life by His grace. So, what's the next thing? They mourn and they shall be comforted. And then, because He comforts us and because He begins to change us, we become gentle, or another way to translate that would be humble. We become humble with other people because we realize what God has done with us and we shall inherit the earth. Humility. Isn't it interesting? Jesus talks about his own humility and he wants us to be humble. Not to value ourselves, but to value him. And I think it says, when it says he shall inherit the earth, I believe he's probably looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, that that is going to be a certain thing for you when humility is a characteristic of your life. Are you humble? Do you hold yourself in low esteem and see others as more important than yourselves? And then comes hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And they shall be satisfied. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you want your life to be changed and become like Christ, he ministers. He does a work in you. And then comes mercy. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we need mercy all the time because we're not perfect in this life. We never will be perfect as he was. But hopefully we're becoming more and more transformed into his image daily. That's our goal. That's what he wants in our lives. And so we shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. They will really know him. They will understand him. Because their heart is pure and they are overcoming their fleshly appetites and living for him. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. I think primarily what he's talking about there is we begin, as we begin to change, we begin to be concerned about others around us and we become peacemakers in the sense that we take the gospel to them and we begin to share our faith and share our hearts. I always think of that passage in 1 Peter. If we live the right way, if we're living these first six, we will be concerned about people and maybe they will even come and ask us you know, I've noticed your life. There's something different about it. What's what's different about you? What's happened to you? I knew you, and you're different. And we have an opportunity to share the gospel and tell them what's different, that Christ has changed our lives. But then when you start putting all of those seven together, which seem progressive in the way you develop in the Christian life, what does he say is going to happen to you? If you begin to be like Christ, what the Bible says is you're going to be treated the same way he was treated. How was he treated? What does the Bible say? They began to accuse him. You do all your works by the power of Satan. The Son of God was told that. You do all your works by his power. You violate the Sabbath you heal on the Sabbath you don't really love the lord you do all of these things and the next thing they're doing is plotting to kill him to get rid of him because he is pointing the finger of righteousness at them and saying you guys just care about yourselves you you take widow money from widows You do all kinds of evil things. You don't care about righteousness. And the next thing, he is brought before Pilate and he is beaten. He is scourged. He has huge nails hammered through his hands and his feet. And he's hung on a cross. This is how Christ was treated by this world. By those that were not his. And then we get to these verses, 10 through 12, and Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the final proof? Persecution. Persecution. Suffering. Receiving the kind of things that our Savior received. How many want to volunteer for that course? How many want to go out and begin to experience that? I don't know how you feel about this country we're living in, but at my age and having been around a while and seeing what it was like when I grew up and seeing what it is now, there are changes, folks. There have been major changes in Australia major changes in Canada for Christians. They can't say things that the Bible says anymore or they could end up in jail. How long will it be in this country before we could go to jail for saying what the Bible says, for being like Christ, for talking about what it is to be one who believes in biblical marriage between a man and a woman, Did you happen to see John John MacArthur recently when he was in his second service? I saw this online a few weeks ago. He was introducing both services, a sermon out of Ephesians 5 on biblical marriage. And he told the congregation at the beginning of that service, this is what I'm preaching on and I'm going to give you God's view. And in the second service, when I was listening to that part, he said, In the first service, when he said that, a bunch of people from all over the auditorium got up and walked out. They did not want to stay and hear him preach what God said about marriage in John MacArthur's church. And then he went on to say, if some of you are like that in this service, you are free to leave. You are free to go. He wanted to preach what Christ wanted to preach, and he had people leave. Some of you have shared with me what it's like in the workforce today. I know people, I know a nurse in Kansas when we were pastoring there who lost her job as a nurse in the hospital that was just two blocks from where we lived because she refused to participate as a nurse in abortions. She, she couldn't stay there. They said, you're out. You're fired. Unless you change your mind. Others of you have told me that in the workplace, you're hearing, here's the training that you're going to get if you want to stay in this job. And, and we know that you have expressed faith, but we want you to leave that faith at home when you come to this training. We want you to receive it and not resist it. That's going on in this country right now. How long will it be before men who preach the word of God, like John MacArthur, like Pastor Scott and others, how long will it be before they may have to go to jail for their faith? In this land, in this country, these kinds of things are happening I even have friends that have left well-known Christian organizations because they see them changing. They see them embracing the woke mentality. And they've left. They said, I can't be there anymore. This is not only happening in our country, it's happening in the church today. So this is what we're going to look at. Now, I know this sounded like a Pastor Scott introduction, and uh, I guess I've been sitting under him now since November and uh, thinking, okay, he gave a long introduction and I've got five points. I don't know how far I get. I might be saying to you what he says. What does he often say? We'll get, I won't say next week, <laughs> but because I should be back in Colorado by next Wednesday, but we'll get as far as we can. There are five points we're going to look at this morning in terms of what this passage says. Five points. And these five points are on the outline if you picked up one. I know Bridget did a little bigger outline, but she, she said my sentences were so long that when she got it on there, there were no room for notes. So she did a little bigger page, and I thank her for that. The first point is this. What does the Lord say in this text will initiate persecution against a believer? Amazingly, What Jesus is saying in this beatitude is that it will be your efforts and achievement in living a godly life, a righteous life. Now think of that. The first seven are setting you on a course to become more like the Savior in every way. Except he didn't go through the first one and he hasn't sinned. So there were some of those that were not applicable to him for sure. But he is humble and he is pure. And all of these other ones, we're becoming more like Christ. And what he's saying is, blessed are you who are persecuted for being righteous, for righteousness' sake. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? Persecution's not going to come to you if you are not living that life, at least from the world, but it will come to you. He says in verse 11, if you do things and you are persecuted on account of me, if you're speaking up for Christ, if you're saying I'm a Christian, persecution is going to come your way. So if you're living as he lived and living as he commanded you to live, why would others be hostile? Wasn't he the most loving person that ever lived? Yes, he was, without a doubt. Yet his love included pointing out need, pointing out sin, pointing out God and his righteousness and the kingdom and talking about how to enter that kingdom. And that's what made people mad and hostile. That's what made the Pharisees and the scribes mad when he said, you guys are lost you don't know the Lord. You're on your way, and he used these words, to hell. Can you imagine a preacher saying that today? Jesus said it, but he loved so much that he was willing to lay his life down and willing to tell the truth so that people would come and be saved and repent and turn from their sins. All are lost and under judgment, and they need the gospel. And the first point of the gospel is you're lost. You're a sinner. You need to repent and turn from your sins. Unbelievers don't like to hear that. And they don't like the people who bring them that message. So as you begin to live out the Beatitudes, which Jesus says is the way to blessing from God... Know this, that in the world, you are going to be hated as he was. How many of you have ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? Anybody? He was a German, lived in the 1800s. And by the way, his father and grandfather, Nietzsche's father and grandfather were Lutheran pastors in Germany. I think probably he was one of... Adolf Hitler's favorite guys to read, without question, in Germany. Listen to just a few comments about his life. He called himself, by the way, the Antichrist, Nietzsche. That was in his bibliographical data. He is the Antichrist. And he wrote a book entitled The Antichrist. So let me read just a few things so you get a feel for this man. It, in it, in this book, he defines what is good as all that heightens the feeling of power. Did you get that? That's all that's good. It heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself. And what is bad is all that proceeds from weakness. Consequently, in answer to his own question, what is more harmful than any vice? He replies, active sympathy for the ill-constituted and weak Christianity. He sees Christianity as a religion of pity instead of a religion of power. So nothing in our unhealthy modernity is more unhealthy than Christian pity. He despises the Christian conception of God God is God of of the sick, as a spider, he says. In the entire New Testament, there is only one solitary figure that he said he was obligated to respect. Who do you think it was? Anybody know? Pilate. It was Pilate. That's the guy out of the New Testament that he respected. Jesus, by contrast, he disdains as God on the cross and Christianity as mankind's greatest misfortune. The cause of his venom is plain. The ideal that Jesus commended is the little child. He lent no support, whatever to Nietzsche's commendation of the Superman. So Nietzsche repudiated the whole value system of Jesus. I condemn Christianity, he wrote... I condemn it. The Christian church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has made of every value a disvalue. This man died in the late 1800s. That was going on in Germany before Hitler came along. And there are people like that today. More and more and more. And I would imagine we're going to see that happen in this country if it continues down the path that it's going if you are not experiencing persecution today in your life it's because of a couple of reasons number 1 it could be that it's because this nation hasn't advanced as far as it's going to go yet could be that the place that you work hasn't advanced that far or your neighborhood but how long will it be before those days come? Notice I said yet, because we're seeing the signs all around us. Without revival, without a change in this country, where are the Billy Grahams for today? You seen any? Are there any preaching on TV? Are there, are there any mass rallies asking people to come and to hear the gospel? We don't see that today. I saw it all the time when I grew up. I was saved because I watched one night, unexpectedly, a Billy Graham crusade on television that I never planned to watch. And it was over. I was in the back bedroom on my knees praying that Christ would forgive my sins and turning to him in repentance and faith and accepting so great salvation. Where are men like that today? Many of you could tell stories of your own. Some of you have said to me, I'm experiencing all kinds of things in my job. I am seeing people turn against the Christian faith. There's another reason that you may not be receiving persecution at this time. And it's because you're not living so as to attract it. Are you living according to the Beatitudes? Are you living like Christ, which Nietzsche hated? A father and a grandfather that were pastors in the Lutheran church? And that's where he ended up? If we are living out the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, Persecution on account of me is coming your way. Might come from your family. One of you even tonight told me about some persecution they're feeling from a family member who's turned away from the faith and the gospel. Others of you may have other stories, but those things are happening. Listen to these three verses, and I'm just going to read them. They're just short verses regarding Christians and suffering and its importance. Romans 8, 17 We are fellow heirs with Christ. Wow, great. Preach it. But there's an if clause that follows. You know about those if clauses? If indeed we suffer with him in order that we be glorified with him. Wow, what's the if clause saying? We're fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him in order that glorification will follow. You're not willing to suffer with him? Nobody told you that when you were saved? It's part of the Christian experience in life. Listen to Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him. Okay, what else? But also to suffer for his sake. To suffer for his sake. And the third verse, 2 Timothy 3.12. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be glorified. No. I changed the word. What do you think it says at the end of that verse? Persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What will initiate Persecution becoming more like our Savior, looking more like Him, sounding more like Him, being willing to shine the light in darkness as He did. That's what will bring it. And it will come. The second point is this. What does the Lord say will be the nature of this persecution upon a believer. Well, he says several things in the text we're looking at. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Well, he's talking about insults, verbal abuse. But also from Scripture, we learn this. We learn that the suffering that Jesus is talking about this persecution and the suffering it will bring happened to Christ. We've already talked about what he experienced, just a portion of what he experienced in his life. Do you remember what Jesus one day, after he was raised, told Peter was going to be waiting for him down the road? Not, not very pleasant. Persecution. Suffering. And you remember what Peter said? Hold it. What about John? What's he going to get? And the Lord said, you just leave that to me. And John, I'll take care of that. But you worry about what I've said to you. You be concerned about what I have said to you. What about Stephen? Stephen was a young man and he's preaching the gospel. And who is there holding coats while they stone him to death? Paul. Saul, who became Paul. And the Lord saved his life. And he regretted that. Those things, those deeds that he had done all through his earthly existence. What about John being isolated on the Isle of Patmos? What about James who died and Peter was set free? What about Paul who suffered repeatedly? Beatings, stonings, time in jail, over and over again, Paul writes about what he experienced and he said, you know what? It was worth it. It changed me. It caused me to look to him. It caused me to grow. These sufferings include beatings and other forms of physical punishment, jail time, death, through very harsh means. Very harsh means. Many Christians in the early church experienced Tragic martyrdom. One of my favorites, when I teach church history, and I happened to be able to teach it here in the seminary a couple years ago, one of my favorite early saints is the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. And towards the end of Polycarp's life, after he's been serving the Lord faithfully and becoming more like Christ, he is brought into the arena, and the pro there says to Bishop Polycarp, Revile Christ, and I will release you. And he said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme him, my king, who has saved me? I am a Christian. To the crowd, the proconsul then proclaimed Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. And the crowd yelled, Let him be burned! Let him be burned because of his faith. Wood was collected. And a pile was made. Polycarp asked not even to be fastened to the stake with the nails. He said, leave me thus. He who strengthens me to endure the flames will also enable me to stand firm at the stake without being fastened with nails. The woodpile was lighted, and then they heard Polycarp praying in the midst of the flames that were engulfing his body. Lord God, Almighty, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I praise Thee that Thou hast judged me worthy of this day and of this hour to participate in the number of Thy witnesses and in the cup, in the cup of Jesus Christ. There are times when I read that and I think about his life and I think, Lord... Would I be able to do that? If today they said, listen, either you renounce your faith in Christ or you're going to be killed. You're going to be put to death. We don't need people like you here. Would I be willing to say, I will never renounce my Savior? That's my earnest hope and desire. I haven't had that opportunity yet. But I think I'm ready, and by his strength, I will be able to do that, and so will you. Even in our own times in this country, we've mentioned people losing their jobs, businesses going under because they've taken a stand. Like the bakery in Denver, in Colorado, where we have lived for so many years, that said, I am not going to make a cake for you, for your wedding, with transgender stuff on it. I can't do that. And what have they gone through? What do a lot of people go through? We have no idea what the future holds for us in this land. It's just amazing that in a little over 200 years, we have turned our backs basically on God as a nation. How many Republicans or Democrats really know the Lord Jesus and are willing to stand for him if it means they get thrown out of the Senate? if it means they get trashed and not voted for. But we need to expect what is going to come. It is on its way. It's going to be hard. And we, as believers, need to be ready and aware that no believer is exempt from this kind of response in the midst of persecution no matter what it means, no matter where it comes from. Number three, why has the Lord made this persecution a part of his plan for the believer? Number one, it is a test that once successfully passed will prove our faith. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Oh, what I'm going through is is a test? That word in the Greek language has two different ways of being translated. One is to translate it temptation. The other is to translate it test or trial. Now, obviously, in this context... It means Peter's writing about the Lord is testing us by letting us be persecuted. He's testing us. Temptation is a solicitation to evil. That comes from Satan. God doesn't tempt anyone, James says. Remember James 1? God doesn't tempt anyone. He doesn't solicit evil out of us. He was the one that worked with Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to get your son Isaac, your only son, who came late in your life, and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. Who was the promise to come from? Through Isaac, your son. Jesus Christ was to come through the line of Isaac. And here is Abraham going, what do I do? He was being tested. And God says, when he has his hand up and ready to put Isaac to death, Abraham, stop. Over here is an animal. Go get that. I knew your heart. I was testing you so that you would know where you stood with me, that you were willing to serve me no matter what the cost was. It's a test but it proves you to yourself and it proves you to others that you are sincere about your faith. So it is with persecution. When we are persecuted, it is an opportunity as we read here. It is an opportunity for us to put our faith on display. Put our faith on display. Now, also from Scripture, We learn some other things. Number two, it will mean greater joy for us when Christ returns. 1 Peter 4.13 says, 1 Peter 4, Peter is very much back in the Sermon on the Mount and kind of rephrasing and saying what Christ did there. Peter says that as we share the sufferings of Christ, we are to keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, we may Rejoice with exaltation. Suffering comes along in this life so that when we see him, one of the reasons that it is given by God to us, it's part of his plan, is there will be greater exaltation when he comes again because of what we have endured and what we have looked forward to. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 says, Paul writes, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You cannot even think of comparing this eternal weight of glory which awaits you when you suffer for him and come through it by his grace. Number three. Because it means it's a means of greater heavenly rewards. Matthew 5 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, we have now, we're part of the company of those prophets that died, that suffered for their faith in the Old Testament. Number four, and the last one here because it enables the believer to put the glory of God on greater display. 1 Peter 4, 15-16, Peter exhorts us not to suffer for sin that we commit in our lives, but to suffer for living as a Christian, so that in that name we will not feel ashamed, but bring glory to our God. You want to feel shame? When persecution comes your way, don't live for Christ. You want not to feel shame, but to promote his glory and to let people know how much you love him and how glorious he is, then you suffer. If you're fired, you hold your faith. If you lose your job, if they want to take your house away, You say, none of this matters. The only thing that matters is eternity. There's a song that I mentioned in our BFG a a couple of weeks ago, sung by the new Christy Minstrels and John Denver. And it's talking about, I will taste your strawberries and drink your sweet wine. And then he goes on to say in the song, a million tomorrows will all pass away. Ere I forget the joy that is mine today. What he's saying is in the song, the joy of being there with this individual and partaking of the fruit of the vine and spending that time together, a million tomorrows will all pass away. Ere I forget the joy. Think of this. A million to Mars are only something like 360 years. How long is eternity? That's like one day in eternity. You want to have the fullest joy in heaven. You want to live to put the glory of God on greater display in this life. You must be willing to suffer if it means you lose everything. Your job your family your life for Christ this is serious and the times we living in we are living in are getting serious number 4 what has the lord promised to believers in order for them to endure this persecution what has he told us that he will do for us and give us when we are persecuted First of all, the knowledge that when we suffer for righteousness and on account of his name is planned by him, it's not just happenstance. It's part of his plan. And it's for our eternal good. Do you remember what Pastor Kelly Smith said a couple weeks ago? He was out of that one verse, Romans 8, 28. Remember what he was saying? All things... Work together for good. Not all things are good. All things work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Remember that? All things do work together for good. When your eyes are on the Lord and you know that he is over all things and that what happens to us is allowed by him, it is planned by him, and he will be with us. And he will give us the courage and endurance as he did Polycarp to say, I don't even want to be nailed to these boards. I will stand here for his glory and for his sake. In light of that knowledge, we can completely trust him. He's sovereign. He has promised to bless us exceedingly while we go through suffering. Matthew 5, 10. He will make us truly happy in the spirit. He says, blessed are you who are persecuted. Blessed are you when you receive persecution. Wow, what does the word blessed mean? Extreme joy, extreme happiness. You mean I can be happy and joyful? He will do that in me? when I'm being persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Yes, he will. He is sovereign and he will be there. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And he will be with us whatever comes our way and he is sufficient for every ordeal and trial. I'm going to read to you just four verses. If you want to turn there, you can. Romans chapter 8, where Pastor Kelly was. And he might have even have written these as well, but I think it'd be good to hear them again tonight. Verse 35 to 38 of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love those verses. And they're so appropriate to answer the question, why? Why is he allowing people that he died for, that he loved, to go through this? Because it's in his plan. And we can grow and become even more like his son and experiencing great joy joy and wonder in heaven when he comes again the last point is this what is to be the believer's response when suffering persecution he tells us very clearly doesn't he in in verse 12 rejoice and be glad rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great what's our response when we're suffering, when people say things at the office about us and say it falsely and accuse us because they don't like us, because they know our stand, and and, and we they know that we will speak out for righteousness and not just be pam, be pamby over it. We're gonna speak out what our convictions are. Rejoice even when they come against us and be glad. Not in the evil that they are doing, nor the one who is doing it, but rejoicing in God's goal for the suffering in our lives. He's making us more into the image of Christ. He's making us more like His Son. In Luke chapter 6, verse 23, we read this, and it's a paraphrase of what we read in Matthew 5 Be glad and leap for joy. What? When I'm persecuted? Leap for joy? Bring it on, folks. This makes me happy? That's probably not the best thing to do. But before God, rejoice. Count it a blessing because God is in control and he's letting you experience this because he has a plan and a purpose for you. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul even tells us that in his sufferings, He has experienced some sorrow. He says sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. When? When he was beaten. When he was stoned. When he was locked up in jail. When he was laying ready to die at the end of 2 Timothy. When he says, my time has come and I have fought a good fight. And I have kept the faith and I have finished my course. And I'm ready for whatever God has for me. What's our response to be? Rejoice and be glad. And to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We can trust him. We know what his son had to go through. For us. And we can go through whatever he has planned for each and every one of us by his grace and for his glory. And the last thing there is to suffer gladly for the sake of his name. Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his Christ's name. Wow. We haven't experienced much of that in this country in our lifetime. But I want to say to you tonight, if we live for Christ in the world that we're in now, in the land that we're in now, we will see this come more and more. Are we living a righteous life? and shining God's light in ever, an ever-darkening world? Are we ready to receive that? what that will mean for us? No, no, no matter how serious the consequences might be? And they could be serious. Loss of a job could be serious. Loss of family members could be serious. Being ostracized having our possessions taken away, physically abused, put in a jail cell. For having stood up for Christ and his word. I'm not only asking you tonight these kind of questions, I'm asking me. I'm asking me. I've said to the Lord several times this week as I was getting ready for tonight, Lord, I want to be ready for these times. I want, I'm saying to you now, I will give my life for you. I want to do that if it's required. We're not to run out and and try to become martyrs, but if that is required of us, Lord, I want to become what you want and you will be with me. And the reward... Will be great, and I will exult like I never have before in my life. Listen to these last two verses, and then, we'll, then we're done, and I 'll pray. Romans 8:18, 8, Paul says, "For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever we have to go through, be ready. Nothing, nothing should stray us from this path because the glory can't even be compared that awaits us, that will be revealed in the future. And I love this out of Psalm 73 by the psalmist Asaph. Verses 25 to 26, he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then at the end, in verse 28 of this Psalms, he concludes by saying this As for me, the nearness of God is my good. And that's his only good, the nearness of God. Who does he have in heaven? God. What does he desire here on this earth? Nothing besides him. Will the nearness of God mean everything to him? Will it be the most important thing to him? Will it be the good thing for him? He says at the very end, I have made the Lord God my refuge and nothing more I don't know what awaits me and I don't know what awaits you but if you have a heart for Jesus Christ and you know him and you're living as he wants you to live and you're putting the Beatitudes in operation in your life by the power of the spirit who indwells you persecution is coming I don't know how soon but it's already here Stand up and be counted for Christ and let nothing stop you. Be like Polycarp and say, I have trusted him, I have lived for him all my life since he brought me to himself and I will not turn against him now. I will not. No matter what. Do you know what? When you think of, say, if a person lives in this life to 80, 90 years, what that is out of a million tomorrows? About 120 out of the million. About, one, about no longer than that. A million tomorrows is just the beginning of living with our Savior forever. And all eternity are you ready for what's coming down the road and by his grace will you stand amen let's pray father this is probably not the most pleasant of messages to hear but it is so real and so appropriate in our day And we know that the ones who take it to heart will be blessed by you. And they will be a testimony for you. And they will pass the test and bring glory and honor to your name. Strengthen us in the inner man. Prepare us for the days which are coming. Help us to be more like your son. And help us to long for the day in which a million tomorrows will just be the beginning. Just the beginning to be with our Savior and all of our loved ones in the faith who've gone before. Pray this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.